Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast, a no-bullshit discussion about reimagining religion and remixing spiritual practices. I'm your host, Sanderson Jones, and today we're going to be talking to Jonathan Rosen. Jonathan Rosen is a philosopher and a chess grandmaster and one of the deepest thinkers about how we can look to ancient practices in order to reimagine them to tackle some of the deepest problems that we're facing in society. This is a guy who knows how to speak on a political level, he knows how to speak on an activist level, he is an expert in climate change, he's an expert in sort of personal growth, and he is exactly the sort of person that we want to speak to, and we are so pleased to introduce him to you. Welcome to the Life on This podcast. Uh, it is me, Sanderson. And me, James. And we have our amazing guest today, and that is uh, Jonathan Rosen, director of the Perspectiva Institute. A, I would say you're a sort of modern day theologian, though lacking a religion, uh, but that's probably the sort of thing that we can get into. Uh, you, uh, Jonathan, is this thinker who has really influenced me, and in the circles that I move in of like, uh, progressive, spiritual, oh, can we use that word? Sort of thinkers, people who want to change stuff, but have a feeling that we need to get our souls and communities into it. Uh, Jonathan is an absolute legend. Jonathan, how are you? Uh, unusual introduction. <laughs> a theologian, but lacking a religion. Well, that's... I like that. Um, I think it's probably not, it's not true at all, but it's sort of generous and <laughs> Why don't you so think like it's that. true? Well, it's funny, you, you, I have been called a theologian before and I've never really seen myself as such. But um, lack, I'm not sure I lack a religion as have too many religions in some ways. Um, so that's maybe deeper into the conversation. But uh, suffice to say, it was, it's nice to be here. And, um, looking forward <laughs> Great. To and by the way, well, the first question we're going to get into is uh, about uh, a spiritual background growing up. And we want to do that. But I want to, this is why well, I love Jonathan, you are a man of words. And uh, I remember an event when someone said, could you define the meta crisis? And you went, uh, yes. And so this is something we're going to talk about. It's the crisis of all crisis, crises of all crises. And then you went, well, there's the meta hyphen crisis. There's the capital M, capital C meta crisis. There's the meta comma crisis. And everyone was like, oh, okay, well, look, you're just going to be careful what you ask this guy because he's armed and ready to go. Uh, the so yeah, that, the first question we ask is what is uh, was the spiritual background or religious or philosophical uh, background to your childhood? Wow. So there was no formal organized religion. I grew up in Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, it wasn't anti-religious either. There wasn't really. It just wasn't really there. Um, it, it appeared every so often. I think there was Sunday school I may have popped into now and again. There was assemblies at school. There was some, you know, singing of, I remember a song about Noah's Ark that I quite liked. There were various things going on, you know, ambient sort of residual religion, but nothing very intense. But then I suppose I spent a lot of time alone. That's probably the defining feature of my childhood. I had a brother and a family and friends, but various circumstances, which are detailed in, in sort of chess memoir that I wrote, we'll come on to that maybe later, you know, meant that I spent a lot of time in the park by myself, uh, kicking a ball against a wall and trying to make sense of things alone. And so by the time I was about 15, I was already doing things like putting quotations on my wall and trying to sort of encapsulate uh, sort of views of the universe in pithy expressions. Um, and then I suppose things moved on a little bit and I eventually became a student at Oxford, at that point, there wasn't really any uh, firm commitment, but I learned to meditate. I learned um, transcendental meditation. And if you get into that more theoretically, it becomes quite interesting. Uh, there are views of the mind and the layers of consciousness and, you know, indirectly views of God. There's even some physics in there. And I got into that kind of thing, thinking more deeply about human nature. And I was also surrounded, of course, in Oxford by all these churches and chapels. So I just began to get a certain emotional affinity with my old religion, you know, the, the cultural religion, the inheritance of Christianity. And although I found Christian doctrine rather, well, somewhat obtuse at the time and, and kind of intellectually embarrassing at the time, 
I still sort of noticed a certain dignity, a certain certain aesthetic, uh, something rather beautiful about it that I was drawn to. So I didn't sort of throw it out of hand. Um, and then I later, latterly married my wife Shiva, who is Hindu and from India. So Indian religions have played a big part in my view of the world. And I suppose intellectually, I'm kind of Buddhist. I I, I read a lot about you know, the nature of the mind and um, some of the ways in which we deceive ourselves and delude ourselves. Um, and because I've been, you know, university for a few years, I'm quite skeptical by nature. So, you know, I quite like the odd story of whatever, a divination or an astrology reading or, you know, I'm up, I'm up for it at a conversational level. But on the other hand, I've got quite a strong sense of, you know, what might just be bullshit. So that's your, that's abuse that. Uh, no, it's to. okay. So you're sort of, astrology curious like you can dabble but uh, you're not going to throw yourself into the life style wholeheartedly i, I wouldn't <laughs> go quite so far as to say astrology curious but i would say i, I think my point is that, that i don't have a rigid cosmological framework right it's there's a sense in which everything is on the table um but but the critical faculties are there to make sense of what's on the table so it's not like i'll try this i'll try that that, that everything is tr equally true it is something like well look guys we don't really understand what time is. We don't really know how, what consciousness is and how it might relate to, to matter. Um, and we don't really know um, what the self is or if, you, if we even have one. And so as long as these kind of things are in flux, you know, I'm quite open to traditions that have been thinking about such things for millennia uh, and other practices which have been, people have been dabbling in for millennia. So it's more like a kind of keeping your mind open but using your discernment. Um, uh, and not foreclosing any particular view of the world, not saying, uh, yes, God definitely exists. No, the question doesn't even make sense. Uh, yes, I'm definitely an atheist. No, I'm definitely not. It's more like a kind of live day by day and enjoy these questions. Uh, the cosmological, I think I'm just, just everyone should have a sort of multi-syllabic bingo card because whenever Jonathan's around, that's going to happen. Uh, the, uh, and so one thing, because I'm reading this memoir of yours about chess, and it'd be, I think that that's like a really important part of your sort of development of uh, your, yourself, your this idea of meaning and so much else. It'd be great to, if you could just expand on that, of like it's, uh, you know, it's part in your childhood and development. And then also like your background, you're not just someone who likes to play chess every now and again? I guess not. Well, um, so, so I would say I learned the, the game of chess like any other child, a kind of family pursuit alongside Monopoly and Cluedo and Scrabble and stuff. Um, but I played my brother quite a lot. There was, there was a lot happening at school. I got selected locally, eventually nationally. Um, I gradually got very good at the game. There were some periods of time in my family life where, for instance, my brother and father developed quite serious mental illnesses and I had to you know, make sense of that as a teenager. And, and chess was kind of there to sublimate a lot of these complex emotions that I couldn't really process at the time. I got very good in the process though. I became, uh, uh, event well, I became, you know, the best player in my country, Scotland, and I became a grandmaster and, and laterally I became quite a good grandmaster and I won the British Chess Championship three times. Um, and I wrote a few books about the game. And so chess was a huge part of my upbringing. And it was, in some ways it's my USP. It sort of defines me at one level. And I suppose you can see it as a kind of spiritual practice. I mean, there is a, a sense in which you're placing yourself in a kind of forum and intensifying consciousness uh, as a kind of ritual encounter with your own death, because every game you're, you're facing an existential predicament where you, you either live or die. And so there's a way in which chess was the kind of the way that the spiritual fires of my life were stoked. Um, and I try and make some sense of that in the book. But of course, in chess, there isn't really a deity as such. There's just this kind of, you know, it's more existential than spiritual in that sense. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And um, I think what goes on with chess though as well, which people often forget, is that one of the main things that looms large in a chess player's psyche is the opponent. And so I've developed this very instinctive dispositional sense of what the other side might be thinking. So on any given issue, whether it's religion or politics or philosophy, whatever, almost simultaneously to sort of generating one idea, the opponent's idea sort of crops up at the same time, because to be a good chess player, you actually have to do that. Like it's a sensor which is built in that you have to falsify your own ideas over the board. So you think you've got a great idea, 
And if you're not a very good player, you say, look at all the wonderful reasons. I'm such a great player. This is such a wonderful idea. It's going to work out brilliantly. You sound like Donald Trump. But what the really good players do is they say, oh, here's something interesting. I wonder why it might not work. What are all the things that could go wrong here? And you begin to sort of go through them and you find, ah, this looks promising. Nothing appears to be refuting this. Let's give it a try. And that's a very different mindset. So when it comes to fundamental questions about the meaning of life and you know, the spiritual view of the world, I think that's partly why I've kept things somewhat liminal and open. It's because for any given view of the world, I can sort of see someone giving a very legitimate case for why it may not stack up or may not be the whole truth. I'd love to hear someone who's really in, into monopoly talk about it that same way. What you've got to realize is that like everyone, there's the bank and you've all got to work with each other. And well, I like the community chest is really a sort of metaphor for life and success. Uh, the Well, sorry, what I was going to say was just that, um, you know, we tend to see monopoly as a kind of veneration of capitalism, right? And that somehow being good at monopoly is a sign you're good at business. And therefore, meeting the cultural code and succeeding on the terms of Western capitalist sort of supremacy. But I believe the, the, the intentions of the people who created the game was actually a sort of warning, like uh, how bad, you know, how bad capitalism was and all the sort of flaws with it. So you can, you know, you can look, you can look into that yourself, but I believe that's the case. That it was a kind of warning, it was a game that was meant to forewarn you of all the things that could go wrong. I think that really wrong. explains my being on holiday with my sister when we were, it was a wet holiday, we couldn't go outside and why the board got thrown over there. Now, I don't know what the, don't know which part of the capitalist system that she was, but it was some, something revolutionary. Uh, we always like to start off by doing, uh, uh, asking, it's a bit of a speed round this. There's probably some quite big questions which we're gonna ask you, have to answer sooner than you'd wish. Uh, and there are six parts of the lifefulness framework. There's the fact that everyone should go and find their ultimate meaning, whatever they find divine, you know, finding what your secular worship is, your celebration, that's number two. Three, finding your community life. And we're gonna go through each one as it happens, but they're a bit of a speed round. So the first one, uh, mm -hmm. what is your ultimate meaning? Uh, what, is, uh, what is divine for you in your life? Collective individuation. <laughs> yes, there's another one for the bingo card. All right, what on earth does that mean in less than a minute? It, it means that about eight plus billion people need to find their unique self story while simultaneously realizing that they're not actually real and doing it in such a way that everyone can do it together and support each other with it. Oh my gosh, that is great. It's gonna be some, did it. All right, then, uh, uh, yeah, celebration and devotion. What's your sort of secular work or, or worship? Where do you find that in, as a group or as an individual? Good alcohol. I think um, there's a lot to be said for getting drunk with friends and seeing it as a kind of spiritual practice. And, um, you know, in Vino Veritas and all that, there's a sense in which when you allow yourself to relax and move into that social reverie, um, that you actually, you know, it's, it's good for the soul. It's a sense in which you're feeling a different part of the psyche that needs to be felt. Uh, are you drinking whiskey there? Is that what that was not? Had? That was not whiskey. That was um, an amber liquid, which may or may not have some uh, ale in it. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, that might have been a big one. Over to you, James. Third, third question in the quick fast speed round. So the third pillar is community life. What does that mean to you? It means uh, interdependence and recognizing that we are stronger together and that uh, life is lived more fully when you, you help and allow yourself to be helped. And where do you find that yourself in your I find real it, life? It, well, somewhat different under COVID circumstances, but, it, but I really found community through not only having a family, but being part of a school community. I sort of began mm -hmm. to see what it was to help each other on a sort of daily basis from things as simple as you know feeding a child or collecting them when you couldn't collect them or um all of these you know taking them to play dates taking them to football or tennis or whatever they're doing these kind of small acts of kindness in and amongst the community when you're when you're mutually helping each other to raise your children uh it was very palpable you know it was really a, uh, and also i should just add to that i think people underestimate the extent to which commerce can be communal that actually mm. when we, we moved house at one point and it got to a place we're surrounded by lots of shops and we suddenly felt very much in a community because there was something about the daily experience of meeting these people in different shops that was much more alive than having to knock on someone's door or arrange a coffee morning or whatever. 
you know, that there was something, you know, immediate about being able to walk into a shop and then have patter with, you know, the person who lives there and they would recognize you. And so even though there was a transactional element to it, I think we underestimate the extent to which when it's properly understood and regulated and everything else, um, you know, doing business can be a kind of social glue and, you know, vivifying for that. And that's why my religion of monopoly is going to do so well. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, then uh, number three and uh, no, four is personal growth. Where's your personal growth at the moment? Uh, what's of personal and psychological, spiritual growth? Well, I think a lot of growth is actually undoing yourself. Like I think we tend to think of growth as a kind of increase of stuff that we become stronger, wiser, more of. But actually, in my experience spiritual growth is mostly about letting things go. And it's, uh, it's often about allowing sort of layers of skin to be shed so that new ones can grow. So there's a lot of loss in, in growth that I think people are not fully aware of. In me, actually, you mentioned the book, like giving up chess, uh, you know, in a sense I have given up, I don't really play competitively and haven't done for several years. That was a huge, you know, mm. sacrifice to give up what I'm best at, to give up what I love, so that my life could somehow move on. Um, so that was a kind of growth, but it was also a deep kind of loss as well. Yeah, I, I found that when no longer being a professional stand-up comedian, because it's so much of like, oh, this is, right. this is me. It's like a different type of person. And then you're like, oh, you know, I, I do something which is also really interesting, but it's like, you know, yeah, I, like there's a, your, your heart, your whoever it is, like, and so much of you tied up in it. Yeah, okay, then uh, serving others. This is our translation for ministry, serving others. Where do you find that in your life? I feel I serve my children quite a lot, uh, literally sometimes. Um, and I suppose my main form of service at the moment is domestic. I do an awful lot of stuff that's just keeping the show on the road at home. Um, to make it a bit more glamorous, I suppose I, I do give a fair amount of advice. People do come to me to sort of think through problematic situations in their life, not so much for me to tell them what to do, but just to help see more clearly what's going on. And that's a kind of service. And I suppose um, Perspectiva, the organization I run, in principle at least, it seeks to be of service to the world by clarifying the nature of the, the challenges we all face. That actually leads perfectly to the last one, which is sort of our translation of evangelism that we've called changing the world, but we're not quite sure that's quite the right framing. But, you know, like secular evangelism. This is a more difficult one because the, the change the world energy has, has sort of defined a lot of my life. I've done a lot of work on climate change. I've spoken about behavior change at the RSA. The spirituality work was partly driven by this deep, deep behavior change notion. And if I'm honest, I'm at a phase of life where I'm a little bit ambivalent towards the idea of changing the world. I think um, a lot of harm it's is... fine as it is. Well, it's perfect it's, right now. It's not that. Stick a pin in it. No, no, it's not that. But you've got to ask the problems that we face, how much of them are caused by, you know, people actually trying to change it and how much is caused mm. by um, inertia. So um, it, it's an open question for me, but I do feel these days somewhat more reticent about the kind of rah, 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 let's get to it and change the world. There's a lot to be said for looking deeply about what, what's working well. Um, uh, what, what, what is historical memory? What, are, what is institutional wisdom? Um, so there's something about changing the world at the right, in the right way at the right time. And there's something about deeply valuing what's already there and protecting it too. Great. Uh, thanks so much. You did our speed round. We're now defining it as a speed round because we did it with Tim Minchin and it, it's, it was the whole podcast. The whole they're, they're also, uh, and it's also very unfair to go ultimate meaning in one minute. Uh, That's why we thing, like it. <laughs> one thing which uh, I really want to speak to you about uh, from the point of view of your experience in chess and then this really wide ranging view of human behavior, where we are as uh, a society, uh, I think so many of us are experiencing this feeling that our attention is diminishing, that there is, there's more demands on it anyway, but then there's sort of technological demands adding to that. There's sort of a whole news and information ecosystem, which gives us this feeling of not knowing what to concentrate on, being overwhelmed, trying to disconnect or reconnect. What has chess taught you, or what did chess teach you about attention? And, uh, you know, and how could that be useful in, in people's lives? 
I wrote a long form answer to this question in Eon magazine. So one way is to quickly look at that. But for the sake of this podcast, I would say that um, concentration and attention are somewhat different. I think attention is really um, about what you give your energy, but the capacity to deepen that is really what matters. In some ways, the skill you need to acquire is the ability to resolve, use your will for distractions not to kick in. So you, you need to require a certain immunity to distraction, but that often requires finding something that's worthy of your attention and your concentration. And that's more like a kind of situational or sociological issue, because if you're asked to pay attention to something really dull, you're very, very ripe for distraction, right? So it's partly about organizing your life in such a way that the things you do attend to are things that keep your attention which is why it, it affects everything from both the kind of job you do and the kind, of, the kind of jobs people are forced to do by society that needs them to pay their rent or, or whatever. So somehow what matters with attention is that the social and political arrangements are such that people don't have to squander their attention on pointless things. What David Graeber calls, I'm going to use my second swear word here, bullshit jobs. Um, because you know, if that's what you've got, then no wonder you're distracted. No wonder you go doom scrolling in Twitter or Facebook because you know, you're, you're sort of looking for something that's gonna animate your life. The challenge is to direct your life in such a way and society to allow you to do that, that what you attend to on a daily basis has deep meaning for you and that you can actually concentrate on it so that you're actually improving it or feeling your own sense of agency through it. I've got this one part because I got diagnosed with ADHD and there's this one part which is super nice like where even if there's stuff which I can remember I did a stand-up show where I said that I can't do what I want to do and there's even stuff which is really sort of on the on the surface that exactly the thing which I'm most passionate about can sometimes still uh sort of lack the the oomph from the engine to go over the top so that is a a whole other uh kettle of fish how did you feel when you were diagnosed with adhd i'm kind of intrigued by that yeah it is i think it's like lots of late diagnoses for uh neurodiversity i was just reading something in the uh, guardian today on someone who get diagnosed for autism and it is on the one hand something that like he's got this like explanatory power of like going, oh, well, look, yeah, that makes total sense. And there's then this idea that it's also enables me to forgive myself as well, to be able to go and show some self-compassion. I mean, there's a part of it which is uh, akin to grieving too, because you there'll be people who like i've advised to go and get diagnoses and like i've been quite public about it and you know there'll be someone who's 21 getting this diagnosis or has told their cousin who's like a teenager to go and get it checked out and so it's like going oh that would be really helpful uh and then and then having got it then there's another part which is you know if you if you were diagnosed with a broken leg it wouldn't suddenly mend your broken leg uh, or if you're diagnosed with depression like it, it's a useful thing to know but then the answers to that are you know uh, often the annoying thing is that the answers to it are the very things which you struggle with where it's like uh, okay well then the, the best way to do it is uh, you know have structure and discipline and follow these things you go uh, but Curiously, the thing which you find really hard is having structure and discipline and following things through. And so uh, it's a bit like being told the cure for being slow is running fast. Then again, there's stuff in I've changed how I've organized my life. I've changed, you know, got a greater understanding of the sort of things that I need to have it. And an analogy that I use is like there were there was and it's so weird looking back at my this is a really bad interview of you Jonathan uh the uh, uh but like it looking back at it like I was you know people listen to this podcast I'm able to uh deal with ideas quite quickly and dexterously verbally relatively fluid and what have you and sort of having that at school as well but like every single report card was you know report was like must try harder even when even when doing well at something, uh, you know, and so, you know, that, that is still, that, that there's still struggles which come from it. You're not like instantly go, gone and given a pass. So yeah, it is really useful. It goes and gives you some tools. 
uh, it goes and gives you sort of a degree of self-compassion around it, but it's not suddenly the answer. And then it still is hard because the things which you're talking about of like going, you know, these questions of willpower, like there's so much, uh, there's so much language around it, which is like, is very uh, judgmental of people who aren't trying or aren't making that effort. And that there are, you know, that, like, but there are sort of developmental differences in the brain and how dopamine in process, in processed, which means that like these things, which for some people are self-evident for me, like I, I struggle with. So uh, it, it's useful, but not the, not the answer. And so you just today, for instance, I had one of those days which happens rarely. And like, instead, I'd get a day like that where I just really found it very hard to do anything. And it could stretch into two days, into three days, into even longer. And, but then you get given these skills and these tools. And instead of being off the bike and then being off the bike for a month, you're able to fall off the bike and get back on the bike and it's and do a few productive things. And the idea is to sort of slowly build up, you know, some of these strategies and skills so that you're able to stay on the bike and you have a bit of a wobble or and it doesn't it's not so doesn't feel so existential. But I guess when you yeah. when you fall off the bike, it's it's good to be aware that you're not actually on the bike anymore. And all yeah, it's, it's still very it can still be deeply frustrating when it is as you say, this is stuff that I love doing. Yeah. You know, these things, um, like I really, uh, yeah, enjoy the, the work that I've got ahead of me. But there we go. Uh, and so reading your book about chess, I was like, oh, this, this guy who's got this mastery of attention and concentration. Uh, the, well, uh, I wouldn't want to exaggerate that. I think, I think, I, think uh, I haven't really played chess properly for, gosh, what is it? I don't know, at least five years, maybe more. And um in that time, you know, I, I do have a certain amount of smartphone addiction and um, I, I, I am occasionally both prone to blasts of sort of Twitter indulgence. And, um, you know, I, I recognize how, how fragile attention is. It's, um, but it's also a precious resource. And, and you can look at this very spiritually. Attention is the threshold between you and the world. You know, it's, it is the gateway to reality. It is precious as anything. And working with your attention is no joke. It's really where you come alive or die. And, um, mm. and you know, it has different vibrations and it's fast for some and slow for others. And it's deep for some and shallow for others. And it changes on some days. You know, it's a dynamic variable. But don't be under any um, doubt that attention is really, really, really important. And um, the problem we have today is that we're living in... Uh, a political economic system where attention is a resource to be extracted for for profit um and it's a frontier you know it's like they've they've dealt with the land and they've dealt with the oil and the gas and and the food and 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 the ocean and 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 one of the final frontiers is our very own attention because they mine that you know as you know for through psychographic profiling they can figure out exactly what you pay attention to they can use that to predict your behavior they use that prediction to sell adverts to ad agencies and they make money from that. But the raw material is your own attention. And so it's never been more important to safeguard it and, and care for it and look after it like it was a precious jewel because it is. And here's me while you were speaking quickly, following you on Twitter to make sure I signed up. <laughs> what? <laughs> It's like someone being in the race relations meeting and sort of quickly firing off some sort of uh, racist text whilst it's happening. Come on, James. I'm going to pay very precision close here? attention to his Twitter feed. I'm, I'm going to use okay, my precious jewel of attention on that. I'm wondering, you said something earlier that I thought was really fascinating about your desire to be open to different kind of spiritual models of experience, or I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of how I heard it. Mm -hmm. And also your desire to kind of keep your bullshit filter intact. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that's a tension that a lot of people, particularly people who may have stepped out of a traditional religion, in my experience, they often do so because they're like, eh, I detected rather too much bullshit in this. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to be a part of it anymore. And then re-engaging in that whole area of spirituality, religion becomes quite difficult because you you're quite suspicious of it. I find myself to be quite suspicious of anything with the label spirituality because of the amount of 
false information and bullshit stories and stuff. How do you manage that? Gosh, well, it's a good question. And there's a lot going on there. So um, Sanderson will know that I'm um, back in 2014, I think I published uh, a report while I was working at the Royal Society of Arts in London um, called Spiritualize. And there was a second edition, I think in 2017, a few years later. And um, that was a report on a two-year project that was a kind of public inquiry of an informal, fairly jovial sort, um, where we invited lots of people in to say, look, why do we struggle to speak of spiritual matters? And what substance of any is there to these issues? And how do we begin to frame it in a way that has intellectual dignity? And that was quite important. That line, intellectual dignity, I came across that, I think, in a book by Francis Spufford, uh, which is one of the best book titles of all time which is called Unapologetic, Why, in Spite of Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. Um, and it was a great book to read around that time because I did invite into our project people of or, you know, conventional religions. And I was, as I say, I wasn't altogether suspicious of them. You know, I, in, part, in some ways, I even envied them. I envied them the clarity and the commitment in the community. Um, but nonetheless, there was a kind of resolve and clarity to it. And I, I, did, I did admire that and even, even envied it to some extent. Um, and I say that because in that same period, there were a lot of people that assumed what I was saying was religion's on the way out, spirituality is on the way in. How do we make sense of the spirituality story, right? And I had to take, I had to be quite careful how I did this, not to sort of disappoint people, but I was never really anti-religion. I, I was just saying, look, religion as it currently is conceived is not working for lots of people. Um, it doesn't mean that your roots are rotten, but your fruits leave something to be desired, right? It, and that, that's everything from what, what church attendance feels like to how the Bible reads today to how patriarchal some, you know, Hindu temples can be to, you know, the, all sorts of trouble that's baked into religious practice today. But I think the key to in finding your own way into this as a, a person with many parts, and most of us in a global community will have many parts, many influences, is you have to find your own kind of discernment that is more than anything goes. You have to figure out what for you is of central importance. And the, the kinds of questions you might ask are, what gives me a sense of belonging? What, what gives me a taste of beyondness? What, do, what am I called upon to believe? And what do I think belief means for me in that context? What kind of practices am I going to bring into my life that will give it meaning and depth and give me the strength to actually live my life in some kind of purposeful service to something more than myself. There's no ready-made answer for that. You know, there's no um, on a platter, um, this, this sect or this denomination. But sooner or later, there is a kind of narcissism that you have to be careful about. If you're not careful, your doubts about everything can just be a way of keeping you exactly as you are. If you, if you say, I don't want to go there because they say this, and I don't want to go there because they do that, and I can't believe this because of that detail there, really these are just forms of immunity to keeping you and yourself and your ego exactly where it wants to be. If you actually want to move beyond that, you have to make some kind of compromises. And the compromises I have in mind are, you know, maybe realizing that your intellect has its own limitations. And that's not to say you believe ridiculous things, but you can begin to stretch your intellect and, and recognize that there's a limit to what it can possibly understand. Intellect has their limits, reason has their limits, which is not to say that uh, you shouldn't respect them or use them. They are vital tools to make sense of the world, but they're somehow not necessarily the boundary of, um, but not necessarily living in the service of it seems to me quite important. I, I love everything you're saying here, and I particularly like that you could easily find those things in a set of beliefs that are not true. Like people clearly do all the time find a sense of belonging and beyondness in sets of beliefs that are non-factual. And I, I worry about that. I don't, I don't want people to believe false things in order to get those spiritual goodies. Well, that's that's a fair point, and and that's a very standard. And I, I always like to be standard in my objections. <laughs> <laughs> I was well, loving that see. subtle dig as well. Yeah, that's a very basic objection to that, James. A real, uh, very sophomoric. Let me call it. Um, um, I, I was res res I, No, I know, but I'm trying to think of how I could do a charm offensive using exactly. <laughs> the same idea. Um, so something like you know, orthodox 
and the cutting edge, edge of convention or something like that. Um, <laughs> oh, that's even worse. made it worse. Bloody yeah. hell. <laughs> okay, okay. So I dig myself worse. a little deeper then. Let's see. Yeah. Oh, that okay, cold, I'll, cold I'll, I'll pity, get... Jonathan. Well, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to um, get myself out of the, the hole I've dug myself here. But basically, um, the, the idea about believing, what, okay, A, there's lots of things going on here. One is, what do we mean by belief? Secondly, when we speak of truth and falsity, uh, how flexibly and fully do we understand those terms, right? So if you're saying in order to, if the price of the community and the experience is a kind of surrender of the intellect, such that you have to accept factual things that seem to you to be strictly false, then I would totally understand that. But if what you're speaking about is something a bit more like where, where the boundaries of history and myth are a little bit unclear, or where the boundaries of a literal reading and an allegorical reading are unclear, or where you may have to find the mythic understanding that is our Western birthright, but we've somehow lost through over-literal interpretations of things, so that your appreciation for something can be as much aesthetic as intellectual. If you can get to that place, then, you know, for example, the idea that, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which at first blush makes no sense at all, and I, I even write about this in I even find a way to link this to chess and write about it in the book because the theme of sacrifice connects both to both things. But are you really you annoying to, to be point, around the house? Are you constantly going, oh, yes, going shopping? It's just like chess in a way, my no, no, lovely I've wife, thought, Shiva. Um, I, I try hard not to do that. It's only when I'm tacitly trying to promote my book that I do that. So um, <laughs> There's nothing tacit about this, Jonathan. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, what I was going to say was... Um, in the context of belief, right, um, you can get to something like uh, people would say that you must believe not only that there's an idea of the Son of God and there's an idea of sacrifice and there's something about that sacrifice that has relevance to your predicament today. That's, that's a sort of thin interpretation, right? The, th the sort of more demanding one would be it happened in this place at exactly this time and this exact number of people were present and it happened by these means and you have to believe all of that or else you're not really entitled to come in. I don't know much, I don't think there's much religion these days that's like that. There is some, of course, more orthodox, more literal, but the majority of religious people that I come across and admire are much more flexible, liberal, mythic in their understanding of what they're asked to believe. Um, so I don't find it as troubling. I just see it as a way of, um, it's, a form, it's a form of cognition that's more mythic, aesthetic, uh, but legitimate. I, I think that some of the distinction in comfort with that approach might hinge on where people live, because I, I certainly notice having moved from the United Kingdom to the United States, that actually most of the religious people that I come in encounter with actually do have a much more literal interpretation. And that makes me mm. much less willing to engage in a metaphorical allegorical discussion because i know that that's a doorway to what i see as some very harmful dangerous beliefs but i notice that the, the discussion of these questions is very different in the uk where basically religion is dead and in a country where religion is not that's a different discussion to have i think that's probably probably valid yeah and um my, my only my only sort of takeaway from this, this this aspect of the conversation though is I think allergy, if you have an allergy to religion, but if you love spirituality, but you have an allergy to religion, um, there's work to be done, right? And, and the work is not one of wholesale buying into a particular religious tradition. It's about looking more closely at your allergy as a source of spiritual growth, because you'll find that a lot of the things you're grappling with, people are grappling with in traditions and doing it maybe even better than you can do outside of them. Um, yeah and what is the benefit of being able to look to these traditions because that's a big part of you know lifefulness we could have the reason of uh, Sunday Assembly which was the non-profit which uh, Pippa and I uh, started uh, which was reinterpreting church and then again lifefulness which is looking to congregations uh, you know we've done that because there's a tradition to learn from what would you say that people it is a benefit from going and looking at these traditions and trying to re-engage them. Like what can people get from it in their lives? Well, okay. The, there's two parts to that question. There's what's the value of it and what can people get from it? And I think they're different things. I love speaking to you, Jonathan, because you see questions where, and you're breaking them down, uh, where I've, other people were just like waved it on through. Well, yeah, I'd kind of have to check your passport and visa on that one. So basically <laughs> 
it, look, it's important because I think, I, and I, I've had faced this before. People say like, what's in it for me? Like, you know, what, why should I, you know, what do I get out of it, right? And I think if you're speaking about spiritual growth, that's probably not the right question, right? Um, in some ways, your, your ego, your sense of entitlement, your sense of instrumental purpose, uh, you know, while it has its place, it has its problems too. And it will often keep you trapped in ways of living that are not serving you well. So the question is not so much, why should I bother, um, for instance, going to the temple, the synagogue, the church, or picking up an old text? Or, To be honest, the way I would begin in almost all these cases is, is find somebody from these traditions who is living it and practicing it and find just how human they are, maybe even more so than you, right? And, and that's the way in, you know, that the way for me, I'm not particularly religious, but the reason I've become much more sympathetic to it is that, you know, hang out with some people who you come, come to love and admire and get at, talking to them about what they believe and do and why. First of all, you'll find they're significantly less dogmatic than you expect. And secondly, you'll find that you might learn a thing or two about the depth of commitment to something. So I think if your spirituality is not grounded in something like a tradition, a community, a practice, it's vulnerable. You know, it's not, it's not that it's not fresh. It's not that it's not interesting. It's not that it won't have highlights, but it's vulnerable to collapsing. It it's a lot. And, the, in, and people have known this for, you know, centuries and millennia, which is why these institutional frameworks and doctrines and communities and practices build up around them, because they know that you need community and structure and direction, where the thing that coheres the community is a certain commitment to a view of the world which, by the way, will be quite an open, expansive view of the world, but it will just still have some, some basic principles at its heart, like love or charity or, or wisdom or, you know, something like that. So I would encourage people who want to live a fuller life, who value spiritual ways of being, not to throw religion completely out of the question, you know, to just, just think of what it really means to you and how well informed are you. That's really what I'd ask them to say. And, and so then one thing that you uh, are doing is you've taken a, so you, your works in the spiritualized report was looking at how you, maybe you should go and look at spirituality in, uh, in the modern world, in public policy, and, and even people, you know, looking at it in their own lives. And now you're working on this uh, idea of like, you know, you've called it a, a hundred year project, which sounds less sort of, when you say it, it sounds less sort of like imperial uh, than it could, but you're, you're taking a long view and trying to sort of find sort of people and practitioners and thinkers and doers and trying to help something come out and which isn't in your mind, but could be from the collective mind of everyone else. I don't know if I've answered the question, uh, but uh, it'd be great if you could speak about like, you know, this, this way of looking uh, at the world and of hopefully trying to, you know, make something new happen. So just a brief aside before I answer that, when you said, I'm not sure if I've answered the question, I wanted to quit. You haven't even asked it. But, then I, <laughs> but, but, but here's what I was saying about simultaneously thinking of the other side, because I remembered uh, a, a line that I quote in the spiritualized book by Jonathan Safran Foer when he was asked on start of the week by Andrew Marr, um, you know, do you believe in God? And his answer was, when I'm asked the question, do I believe in God? My answer is, I'm not only agnostic about the answer, I'm agnostic about the question. And that gets back to what I was saying to James and you about belief being this much more complex notion about embeddedness in community and history and tradition, belief not being a simple matter of doctrinal statements about the state of the world. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Your question was altogether more interesting about, you know, really what are you doing today and what is, um, what is this organization you've created and, and why? So a little backstory to that is- And I'm, by I the way, I'm also gonna say, it's just one thing about like also the nature of the change that you're making, because I think it is very, like for yeah. a lot of people, it's quite weird to have a project start, which doesn't know where the project's going. Okay, I, I, I agree. So, um, so we call that, an, we call Perspectiva, Perspectiva is the name of the organization. We call it an urgent 100 year project, right? So it's actually a little bit of a joke because obviously if it's urgent, what does it mean to say it's 100 years long, right? So it's simultaneously recognizing that there are certain aspects of our predicament, not least the ecological aspects, principally climate change. 
that do call for a kind of action panic, get the hell on with it kind of response. And yet nothing is really happening of commensurate importance over many decades. And we're looking at, have you seen the recent David Attenborough documentary where he gives a testimony of his life? Um, that's one illustration of it, but we've known for some time that the planet is becoming less and less viable as a habitat for human beings. And this is only going to get worse in, the, in our children's lifetime. And it's a very acute and real and present danger. There's a sense in which the people who are on the streets, the Extinction Rebellion groups and the, the school strikers that Greta Thunberg sort of lead, leading, you know, you can understand why. There is a sort of urgency to this plight. Um, and so when we say an urgent 100 year project, we're trying to juxtapose that sense of urgency with a need to rethink deeply what's going on. Because if all you do is act within the present system and all its assumptions, you may just perpetuate the problems, which comes back to what I said earlier about the change the world energy often getting in its own way. Um, but to give us a little step back, the, 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 where Perspectiva came from was simultaneously working on spirituality and climate change. And when I was at the RSA, I was doing those two things simultaneously. One was a kind of public understanding of ultimate meaning, nature, and purpose of life. And the other was, what do you do with the biggest collective action problem of, of, of humankind, of, you know, forever, you know, perhaps the, the worst we've ever faced. And, and, I, and the more you look into climate change, the darker it gets, because the harder it is to see a way out of it, which is why the spiritual angle becomes important. Because the spiritual angle is about rethinking human nature, rethinking human community, and therefore rethinking potentially global, global civic society. And that, in tandem with a view of climate change, is a bit harder. It's a bit more about what you might call polycentric governance. By that, I mean forms of institutions and churches and trade unions and um, NGOs working together to mobilize public opinion and get the level of political action we need on the most pressing challenge of our time. And where are they gonna get that energy from? Well, spiritual fuel, whatever that is, right? Lifefulness even. You know, if you're, if you're going to find the requisite energy resolve, tenacity and um, insight to, um, to actually deal with this conundrum in anything, it's less than a complete disaster. Uh, it's going to have to come from somewhere quite deep, right? Uh, and that's what all this sort of spiritual emphasis is about for me. It's like we're, we need renewal and renaissance at a very deep aesthetic spiritual level. And if we don't get it, that will show and manifest in the world at large, which is gradually running out of road. I mean, the world is literally on fire. You know, Australia, California, uh, you know, it's not a joke, it's not, you know, never was a joke, but it's, it's a real and present danger. You know, it's like, it's really happening. And so the, the challenge of Perspectiva is to link these worlds together. Our tagline is systems, souls, and society, because we're interested in the combination of complex systems, like the economy, political systems, ecological systems, with um, souls, you know, the, the interiority of human beings, the inner life and all of its aspects, the psyche, the soul, the spirit, and society, how do you talk about these things together? Because we're not very good at that. You have a lot of like self-help groups and you know, personal growth retreats and you know, spiritual meditation centers and whatever. And then you have a lot of public policy organizations and think tanks, but you quite rarely bring them together um, and, and find ways to, to dialogue and actually make sense of how one informs the other. And so Perspectiva was created with that in mind, to link together systems, souls, and society. And we call it an urgent 100-year project because that isn't easy. You know, it's a, an ongoing effort to find a new way of thinking about the world and talking about it together. That, and that's something which, uh, from that spiritualized report, uh, the, when you were sort of writing about how mindfulness was created and how John Kabat-Zinn, he sort of left the word. And so just for people who are listening, they don't know about John Kabat-Zinn was the doctor who... Uh, when was a Buddhist practitioner and then he decided to translate Buddhist meditation into a way that everyone could take part or a certain part of it, Vipassana meditation. And he deliberately left out the spiritual, the, the word spirituality. And then also like lots of the other different parts of uh, the, the eightfold path of Buddhism, because, you know, it's really tough to go and get that into a hospital. And so with lifefulness, you know, there's one part of it, you know, particularly with my background as a performer, the easiest part to sort of, 
you know, to sell, to go and put into the simplest thing would be to say, it's all about secular worship, come together, sing a song, la 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 la, go and feel different. But that's actually where the other bits come in and why it's, you know, going and looking at the sort of a, you know, something which is more holistic of all of those different aspects, Mm -hmm. because... You know, if you want to go and look at these uh, issues, like that's the amazing thing about the sort of spiritual community, the congregation, is they've got a way about talking about the world, which is as much linked to your relationships as it is to like our governance. Like, you know, in many ways of like spiritual life makes no sense. You can have one sort of practice, which is like, you know, setting up creches, but also doing you know, major sort of political campaigning, like it seems quite disparate, but that is like, it's that level that you need to do and be able to go and sort of connect at the top and the bottom. Uh, So that's just me agreeing with you there, but it's also goes and makes sort of talking about this stuff harder Mm, because there's, because that word religion, people uh, actually, before we got on this call, people sort of like accept that you're going to be doing lots of different stuff, which doesn't really make sense if you were to sort of make it, if you were to like go and sort of put those things together now, you know, in this sort of managerial society where everything should be split off and siloed. Yeah. Uh, well, I think um, the good news is that that way of seeing the world of sort of divide and conquer, you know, define and dissect, reduce and explain, um, you know, I think it's reaching its limits and people are very strongly sensing that even people in positions of power are realizing that this is, you know, is a problem at the level of perception uh, and a challenge at the level of imagination. And, and I think that's no longer a fringe view. I think even in the last sort of eight years or so, since, you know, beginning the RSA project and spirituality, when we did it then, it felt ever so slightly niche, although to some people it felt obvious that one had to do this. Uh, I think today the idea that, you know, we need to rethink the whole shebang, you know, you know everything by, by that I really mean, what they sometimes call the liberal imaginary, you know, the sort of view of the world that is broadly democratic nation states and capitalist economies, that that view of the world, you know, that's just normal life for most people. Consumerism, you have your home, you have your friends, you have things you do, and that's just what life is. And then you find your meaning and purpose within that. It doesn't really work for 8 billion plus people at scale because of the the ecological resources required to sustain that life are, are not there. And so the question becomes, well, how do we live then? And, and what are we living for? And how does that shape how we should deign to live? Um, and that's really kind of what it's about. It's like once you realize that you have to look at the whole thing and how everything connects, it's no longer embarrassing to speak simultaneously of, for instance, climate change and spirituality. They become the same question. Um, but it takes a while to get there. I do accept that. Most people are not thinking at that level of abstraction on a daily basis. Uh, we need to rethink the whole shebang. I was told off because we, that I used the phrase of the words embodied cognition in the title of the podcast. And someone said, that's only going to appeal to sort of slightly wonkish people. Uh, but I think we need to rethink the whole shebang is a really encapsulates what we're talking about. That's fine, yeah. Uh, James, I feel that I've gone and asked a load of things and every now and again, I just have to have stop because you're undoubtedly storing up one of your like really perceptive questions. Uh, so I, I feel it's unfair if I'm just jibber-jabbering. <laughs> Who knows? Now you've set the bar really high. I'm wondering about where morality comes into this. Because my, my congregation is called the Ethical Society of St. Louis. We, we talk a lot about ethics and, and right and wrong. And it seems to me that I was, I was struck by your description of spiritual communities and practices as places to develop the energy required to sustain engagement with intractable problems over time, which I think is exactly right. Uh, the founder of our movement called Congregations Powerhouses, where people generate the moral energy to engage with society. But he had a very clear moral vision of what a good society looked like. And in my experience, spiritual energy is amoral in the sense that it can be directed towards very evil ends and often is. And so I'm wondering what moral framework guides this kind of spiritual this re-engagement with spiritual questions it's a fabulous question james <laughs> really it's a fabulous question for lots of reasons so the first the first to say is that um i got didn't get any of one of those on any of my questions james like this is five stars for you saving the best for then... last 
<laughs> well, the reason I think it's such a fabulous question is I think it works both ways. So I know uh, a close colleague and friend who laments the fact that in his experience of church in the UK, it's really all about morality. You know, it's virtually like the idea of spiritual insight or perception or imagination is just sort of being reduced to this idea of how you should live in a daily conduct basis. And that's sort of sad, something has been lost. On the other hand, you're quite right that if all you have is, is groovy emotions and feelings and you know the odd practice that looks kind of cool, um, but you're not speaking about what is good and what is bad, what is better and what is worse, then the risk is that it is a kind of narcissistic indulgence. So the way I would answer your question is, I would say the forms of spirituality that are most important today you have to look at this, and if I'm allowed one jargony term, you have to look at it meta-ethically, not just ethically. In other words, you have to look at it in terms of the different moral traditions that inform our idea of ethics. So one of them is utilitarianism, which some are aware of, which is basically you do things according to the consequences of the action. You make a judgment about what's good and what's not good, depending on where it leads to, right? The other is something more deontological or Kantian. That's saying it's not about the consequences, it's about whether it's right or wrong. You know, killing someone is just wrong. It doesn't matter on the consequences. Don't do it. You shouldn't lie. Don't do it. That's a sort of deontological view. But the one that's neglected in the West, and the one that I think we have to resurrect, is the tradition of virtue ethics, right? This is a tradition of the good life, a, a normative view, a committed view to saying some ways of living are better than others, right? It's not about saying whether the act was right or wrong. It's not about saying whether something will lead to good consequences or bad. It's making a value judgment based on many centuries of human learning, that some ways of living, some forms of life are of great value. So friendship is of value, humor is of value, um, health is of value. And there are many more things like this, which are, which are, you can make a substantive claim for, the more your life veers towards those things, the better, right? And so the, the sort of moral view I would take is, design your spiritual practice and communities in such a way that it helps people to cultivate virtue. And that's not easy, you know, virtue requires wrestling with a lot of demons, looking at your shadow um, and all sorts of other kinds of work. But I do think the way forward is to connect one's view of spiritual development with the virtue ethic tradition that says there is such a thing as goodness in the world. It's actually a line from at the end of the second Lord of the Rings movie. He was asked, you know, what are we fighting for? And, and then he pauses and he says that there is some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. And it's a great line. You know, it's a really, it, it seals the second movie uh, and, it, and it's, it gets you ready for the big fight of the third. But the reason it matters is that we don't talk enough about what's good and what's not good. Uh, we speak a lot about what's right and wrong and what's good and evil. But the idea of what's a good life and how do you, you know, lifefulness, Sanderson, has to be filled with moral commitments, right? You know, on, on, on balance, it's better to have friends and enemies. You might throw the old frenemy in there, but basically better to have friends and enemies. You know, and it's good to have a certain amount of resistance in life and a certain amount of challenge, but, you know, it's better to have peace and war in most cases. And so you can fill, it, fill in a worldview with some moral commitments. And, and there's a great book about this called How Much Is Enough by Skidelsky, uh, Father and Son Team, that I would encourage listeners to read where they just detail this to say there's a tradition of the good life, look into it. Um, and then, you know, there are still arguments to be had and it's not as though everything's set in stone, still dis great disagreements to be had. But it's not true that we don't know how to live. We actually have moral traditions that tell us how to be flourishing beings and we mostly ignore them, sadly. Look, uh, Jonathan, that is, uh, I want to go and keep this uh, uh, like around about an hour. Uh, so we're just going to stop there, but I would love to go on. Uh, tell uh, people the name of your book, where they can get it. It's called The Moves That Matter, A Chess Grandmaster on the Game of Life. It's published by Bloomsbury and available in all good bookshops and your nearest website. Uh, I am loving it. There's so many uh, different things in it to uh, go. Oh, I wanted to speak to you about Soul Land uh, as well. Uh, also, we can say for another time, you've got that amazing section on uh, men and women in chess, which I think is a very sensitive unpacking of uh, the whole, like so many issues in and around that, which is 
uh, I did think, I was like, should I just drop the, uh, like we've gotten to the end of the interview, should I just quickly dive into the biological differences yeah, between the yeah, sexes yeah, yeah, and yeah. how they interplay with social and psychological? I was like, he's already given us enough time and I want to save that for later on. But uh, hey, thanks so much, Jonathan. You've been great. Uh, and please, oh, I've been starting doing blessings. And I just want to say, Jonathan, I, with all of my heart and soul, I just want to say thank you for blessing me and so many other people with the words that you've written and the ideas that you conjure up. And you have gone and helped so many folk who are in this area have a keener understanding on what they do. And you have used your own life and transmuted the gold into yet more gold. And I want you to go and keep on doing that because I love to be a witness to it. And from all that I see that you're doing, it is just know that you're coming at it with so much love and purpose and not a little suffering. So my one blessing would be, may you find also some time to give yourself a break as well. And that's going to, I don't know how to end it, so I'm going to say that's going to end it there. Thank you. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was so much fun when James and I did it. Uh, I am in awe of Jonathan. He has got a mind like a razor blade and uh, can sometimes be a bit taciturn, but I like it when I sort of go and crack him. It's sort of like uh, extra satisfying to get a giggle from him. And so at the end of the podcast, I sort of give a bit of an update of what's going on in the Lifefulness Project on the community side, and then what's going on with the project itself. And it always seems to be a combination of, hey, it's all going very well. And then other times it's like, uh, you know, feel that I'm hanging on to a moving train and I'm going over a gorge. And whilst that might seem a little over-exaggerated, sometimes that's how it feels. Uh, And this week has not been one of my good weeks. It's quite odd. I think I've I've worked with an ADHD coach, any regular listener will know. And I think last week when I spoke to him, we traditionally have an hour uh, every week. I was like, you know what? Maybe it was the week before. I was like, you know what? I'm kind of getting a hold of this now. I think we're sort of in a good routine. Everything's sort of ticking over nicely. I think we can go and work this back to 30 minutes. And like this, this week, I have to sort of get in touch with him on Monday being like, help me, I'm drowning. And uh, yeah, and it's always a bit weird sharing this. One, I'm sitting in my room, like, so who am I sharing it to? Uh, You guys. And so it's a bit weird sharing this at the same time as designing programs and running courses and you know, helping people live their lives, you always feel a bit hypocritical as though, uh, you know, I'm sort of setting myself up as an expert. I should, my life should be totally sorted. I should have it all figured out. But, you know, that's, you know, people who stand at the front and who are sort of leading things and doing things, you know, they're they're just as human as everyone else. And so uh, anyway, that has been my week more complicated than I would like uh, but also has been really interesting uh, particularly as I sort of try to unpick what part of things which I find difficult are caused by ADHD and then what part of things that I find difficult are caused by sort of anxiety which could have existed anyway but believe you me if you have got undiagnosed ADHD and you'll spend most of your life trying to work out why on earth you can't do the things that you want to do, getting yourself into situations where, you know, you for good reason to be anxious because you don't, you can't figure out what's going on, can't r- rely on yourself day to day in order to go and do the things you know you want to do. And so, uh, yeah, this week with my ADHD coach, we sort of went, okay, on the ADHD side, I feel that I've like got good strategies in place and I'm really sort of got good planning and good systems. But if there's still moments when stress and sort of negative thought patterns and 
you know, old habits kick in, then it doesn't really matter how good the rest of your systems are, then you can still sometimes feel uh, as though you're just slightly, you know, and out of control is the wrong word, but certainly I think trapped sometimes, particularly as you get, oh, I'm almost 40, I'll be 40 in January, and you're like, this again, you, you, my old friend, you, uh, the concerns that I've been battling with for 20, 25 years, you, these worries that I thought I'd sort of at various stages of my life sort of defeated, I thought I'd pinned you on the floor, I thought this time that I'd figured it out, but oh no, here you are again, coming back. So uh, that has been my week. Oh, and also we've got a vaccine coming up. So that, I mean, that genuinely is super positive. The moment that comes through, I'm going to be finding a mosh pit, taking my top off and rubbing my sweaty body against other people. I'm just going to be giving hugs that last an eternity and high-fiving until my hands fall off. That is genuinely good news uh but sort of landed uh on me in a week when uh i found myself in trickiness but it's all part of the journey uh thanks so much for listening uh, as ever if you want to get more involved go and track us down on social media we are at the life on this project on facebook and instagram uh, the um, I'm at Sanson Jones on Twitter. James Croft is at Croft Speaks. He's also the first person I want to thank in the credits. Then Will Andrews for the artwork, and Miro Shot and Roman Rapak for the music that you're listening to right now.